Hi, everybody. All right, congregation participation time. Show of hands, who was involved in cooking the Thanksgiving meal this past Thursday? All right. I don't think I started any fights with that question. (laughs) I did see a couple looking at their spouse. (sighs) Who did something? Who set the table? Who cleaned up afterwards or cooked? A lot of folks. Good. I was thinking about you, especially all of you Thanksgiving chefs earlier this week, when I read an article in The Atlantic. Maybe some of you saw this. It was about quick and easy cooking and this trend, but also this myth of this idea that there is such a thing, right, as quick and easy cooking. The author of the article was talking about how this is kind of a recent obsession, all of these cookbooks with 15-minute recipes and 20-minute recipes. She says, before the 1950s, when convenience foods and all these new appliances came onto the market, she said, cookbooks acknowledged what every homemaker knew to be true, that feeding people was back-breaking work, and then you died. (laughs) At least they were honest back then, she said. It can really be a joy, of course, to cook for the people that we love. When we have that one key ingredient, it often makes it easier to feel joyful. That key ingredient is time. Yeah. And holidays are designed to give us time. That's the whole point of a holiday. That's the beautiful thing about these days on the calendar. There's no real difference between these days and any other days. There's no objective reason that they're different. It's just that we have this collective agreement on those days that we're not going to do things. Right? We're not going to go to work, hopefully, some of us. We're going to get a chance to take a break. We're only going to do the things that we choose to do on holidays, right? Is that what everybody's holiday was like? Only doing the things they choose to do? A couple people, good, good. So sometimes that's how we experience our holidays, but sometimes it's not. The soul bite that Mick talked about earlier that Maria Jacobs is going to be leading next Tuesday talks a little bit about that. The world feels like it goes a little crazy sometimes around the holidays. And we want certain things for those days, and it can be hard to hold to our intentions around them. Sometimes on the holidays, it feels just like our usual list of obligations is replaced by a new and different list of obligations, one that might involve more money being spent or a lot more glitter being vacuumed up from the carpet, right? Sometimes our holidays feel busy because the rest of our lives bleed into them. Sometimes our holidays feel busy because our whole lives feel busy. Does anyone remember these books? Richard Scarry, yeah, some of you might have grown up with them, some of you might have raised your kids on them. Richard Scarry's Busy Town. You get a little bit of a sense of what's going on in Busy Town just from this picture, right? That worm is in an apple which has both wheels and a propeller for some reason. Not sure why. Very busy, though. It's clearly going somewhere. When I was little, I loved these books, loved them. Now, I was a curious kid by nature, and so this kind of overstimulation was heavenly for me, personally. 
But these books were fascinating. They were usually large, right? They were actually big sized. And you could open them up and lay them out flat, and they had these big, complicated, detailed tableaus of this adult world inhabited by friendly, anthropomorphic little animal workers. Right? There were cats and rabbits and raccoons and armadillos and snakes. And they all had jobs. That was their thing. All the animals. There was a fireman animal and a doctor, a gardener, a pilot, a baker, a carpenter, a librarian. All busy. All working. It was fun for me to imagine myself in this world someday when I was a kid. It was fun to look at all the little details and to see where would I be one day in the world of adults. How would I choose to use my time? What would I want to do? Who would I want to be? Richard Scarry's busy town doesn't look exactly like our lives do right now. There are fewer snakes driving apples, which I'm grateful for, actually. But this idea that I had looking at that tableau of choice, of opportunity, of total freedom, right? Endless possibilities for how we would use our time as adults. Is that exactly what adulthood is like all the time? I see some heads shaking. Total freedom, that idea of having the total choice of how we use our time seems like a joke. Sometimes it seems like a cruel joke. Our possibilities don't usually feel limitless day to day. Usually we open up that calendar in the morning, that agenda, and our lives feel pretty tightly conscripted, pretty scheduled. And we know that Busy Town's sense of excitement and that open spirit of imagination is still a thing, right? It's still real somewhere, but we don't always have an easy time getting in touch with it ourselves. I was reminded of Richard Scarry and Busy Town when I read an article, an op-ed in the New York Times about three years ago. It's actually an article that I've saved and come back to more than once. I recommend that you look it up. It's called The Busy Trap by the author Tim Crider. It's funny, too. It's a good read. He starts off the article by saying, almost everyone I know is busy. They feel anxious and guilty when they aren't either working or trying to work or doing something to promote their work. He tells a story of calling up a friend on the phone hoping to get together. And he said... This friend, every time he called, would say, oh, I'm really busy at work, but if something comes up, let me know. Maybe I can ditch the office for a couple hours. He said, I needed to clarify to him that this was not a preliminary heads up to some future invitation. This actually was the invitation. But his busyness, he said, was like some vast churning noise through which he was shouting out at me. And eventually I gave up trying to shout back over it. Now, this is not a message that's intended to shame anyone, me or you, for being snared in the trap of busyness. I know that I get caught in this trap quite often, and you might too. 
Tim Kreider did. He sat down to write that op-ed because he got some new opportunities professionally. He was getting caught up. And he realized that he started hearing himself telling other people the same thing, that he was too busy, that he was too busy to do the things that he wanted to do. And he realized how addictive and insidious it was becoming for him. To complain about being busy made him feel a little bit nice, right? A little bit important, a little bit sought after, needed. It was a complicated feeling because he also recognized that it was stressing him out. It was making him cranky. He didn't feel in control of his time. He didn't feel like it was his. And so he did what I think we've all been advised to do at some point or another. He slowed down. He took some time off. He got away. He says, I remembered about buttercups and stink bugs and stars. Spent time sitting outside, which is all well and good and beautiful. But what I loved about this article was that it didn't sound like every other article like that, right? Oh, if you feel too busy, take some time. Take some time off. Go sit outside. All true. But Tim Kreider also talked about the bigger picture. He talked about the deep stuff in our culture that teaches us that we are worth what we do. That we are worth what we do, what we make, what we produce. One of my favorite lines in the article, he says, the Puritans, remember them from the holiday on Thursday? The Puritans, the founders of our country, turned work into a virtue, evidently forgetting that God invented it as a punishment. (laughs) It's true. Look it up. (laughs) And he's right about the Puritans, too, right? If you look back at the founding of our country, the Puritans were a particular kind of religious extremist, right? That's why they left where they were. They were persecuted in their own country, and so they came to the United States. The founding of our country is wrapped up in a particular kind of strong, strong religious sentiment that says that the good, hard work that we do shows that we are worthy of God's favor, shows that we are elect, we are chosen. Founding stories stick with us. Have you ever been part of an organization or a company where the founder is still around, you know that, and sometimes even when they're gone, sometimes centuries later, the founding story is stuck in the air that we breathe. It's running through our behavioral gene pool as Americans. Our activity, we think, our product and its quality, that's what gives our lives meaning. That's what hedges against that existential emptiness in the dark at 3 a.m. that asks us, what are we good for? What are we here for? If you don't believe that most Americans 
feel this way, if you don't think that we don't intimately connect our sense of worth to the work that we do, consider how you react when you hear the policy proposal that Tim Kreder brings up next, which is this idea that income should be completely separated from work. Hmm. It's an idea, right? Think about how we react to that idea. The idea that every person should just be given a basic guaranteed paycheck to support themselves, to pay for their food and their shelter and the things that they need to live. It's just an idea. He says, it sounds like the kind of lunatic notion that might be considered a basic human right in about a century, like abolition or universal suffrage or eight-hour workdays. These were once ideas that were very different from the way that things are. Now, I'm not an economist. I'm not suggesting that we do any of these particular policy prescriptions. But what's interesting is how off the wall it does sound to us. I think that teaches us something. That shows us how we think about human value now what's already in that behavioral gene pool of ours that we sometimes don't even see. Here at Wellsprings, we have a small group, a springboard, that we offer twice a year at least called Wellsprings 2.0, Listening to Our Lives. It's a nine-week group that offers people a chance to get to know themselves and also to explore some of these perennial spiritual topics that we're curious about. And towards the middle of our nine weeks together in Wellsprings 2.0, we talk about spiritual practices, meditation, prayer, yoga, chanting. We talk about developing a spiritual practice, and we define it as non-productive time. It can be lots of different activities, but the thing that makes it a spiritual practice is that we don't do it for another purpose. We do it for our own purposes, to get in touch with ourselves, to get in touch with that source that sustains us. And when we talk about spiritual practices, one of the things that we do after we've explored this is we brainstorm barriers. Right? So we've talked about spiritual practice. We get that it's good for us. So what are the things that keep us from doing it? How many of us here today have a spiritual practice? A couple. Oh, that's a lot of us. Good. When I came to Wellsprings about two years ago now, I didn't have a regular spiritual practice. And I could come up with a really long list of reasons why. We brainstorm this with the group, and people always say a couple of the same things, right? Time. Time is always one of the first answers. We write that up on the board. Interruptions, right? Oh, I can't do a spiritual practice. I have kids, I have dogs, I have cats, I have armadillos. I don't know what you have at your house. Something will be interrupting me. Willpower, right? I just can't seem to do it. I just can't seem to get myself to fit it into my schedule on a regular basis. Inconsistent schedules. I can't find a time that works every single day, and I want to be able to do it at the same time every day. So we brainstorm all these things and we write them up on the board, but usually after about 10 reasons, someone will be brave enough to say something that everyone else has been thinking. And you know because everybody in the room goes, ah, right, that noise. I love that noise. Someone will say, I'm not doing a spiritual practice because I'm afraid of what I'll find. 
We didn't even rehearse that. (laughs) I'm afraid that if I sit down quietly with myself, I'll discover things I don't like. I'm scared that if I just am, if I'm just sitting here being with my non-productive, good-for-nothing-else self, I'll realize that all these questions are knocking at my door. What am I here for? What am I good for? We all do know that slowing down is supposed to be good for us. We've read the articles about how mindfulness practice is good for our health, even good for our work, right? But we're afraid that when we slow down, we won't find steadiness. We're afraid that when we slow down, we'll be like swimmers in the water or an airplane in the sky. If we stop moving, we'll sink or we'll crash. I want to tell you a story about a very non-productive person. It's a story by the author Rachel Macy Stafford. Some of you might know her as her blogger name, Hands Free Mama. Rachel Stafford's life was very active. She said it was full of electronic notifications and ringtones and jam-packed agendas. And then she had a daughter. This is her daughter right here. Next slide. She said, a laid-back, carefree, stop-and-smell-the-roses kind of child. Just perfect for my life. Rachel said, when I needed to be out the door... My daughter was taking her sweet time picking out a purse and a glittery crown. When I needed to be somewhere five minutes ago, she insisted on buckling her stuffed animal into a car seat. When I needed to grab a quick lunch at Subway, she would stop to speak to the elderly woman who looked like her grandma. When I had 30 minutes to squeeze in a run, she wanted me to stop the stroller and pet every dog that we passed. When I had a full agenda that started at 6 a.m., she asked if she could crack the eggs and stir them ever so gently. (laughs) Rachel said, whenever my child caused me to deviate from my master schedule, I thought to myself, we don't have time for this. Consequently, the two words I most commonly spoke to her were hurry up. I started my sentences with it. Hurry up. We're going to be late. I ended my sentences with it. We're going to miss everything if you don't hurry up. I started my day with it. Hurry up and eat your breakfast. Hurry up and get dressed. And I ended my day with it. Hurry up and brush your teeth. Hurry up and get in bed. Time. And although the words hurry up, she said, did little if nothing to increase my child's speed, I said them anyway. And she said, one day something changed. She says, we just picked up my older daughter from kindergarten. And we were getting out of the car. And my younger daughter was not going fast enough for my older daughter's liking. And so my older daughter crossed her arms 
and let out an exasperated sigh and said, you are so slow. And looked at her sister with such unkindness. And Rachel Stafford said, I saw myself. I saw myself in my older daughter. And she said, I got down on my knees in front of both of them. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've been making you hurry so much. I actually love these things that you do. I love that you take your time. And then she said what I think is probably the truest thing in this whole story. She said to her youngest daughter, I want to be more like you. I wish I could be more like you. We are worth so much more than what we do and what we produce. We are worth so much more than what we're good for. We're not good for anything. We're not objects. We're just good. We're human beings. We're someone's child. We get scared of slowing down because we know that if we slow down, we might see what we've been missing. Afraid to acknowledge all the ways the world deforms us and dehumanizes us, turns us into machines for someone else's production, for someone else's purposes. But when we stop and we slow down, we have a chance to remember that we are beloved. And so are all the other people around us. There's nothing bad about work. Trust me, I love work. (laughs) Work can be creative. Work can be life-giving. But work driven by shame or fear or loveless obligation, that's different. That's a different kind of energy than the energy that arises naturally from opening up to the possibilities that are around us. The energy that comes from a child looking at the tableau of busy town and saying, who am I? That's a beautiful kind of discovering of ourselves, of the gifts that we have to offer. That's a devotion that calls our hearts forward, that says that the work we do, this action, this effort, this creation, it's not just good for everybody out there. It's good for me. It's good for us, too. Slowing down... It's not death. Slowing down is what saves us. The Benedictine monk, David Steindl Rast, says that we can remember this. Actually, if we remember something we all learned as children. When we cross the street, what do we do? We stop, we look, and then we go. We all have stop signs in our lives. Other people put them there. We put them there. They're different for each of us. Maybe a stop sign for you is frequent headaches. 
indigestion, your stress level. Maybe a stop sign for you is an addictive habit, a way that you numb yourself out. Maybe it's your temper, your impatience, your loneliness. The point is not to berate ourselves when these stop signs come up and force us, nag us to stop and slow down. We can thank them. We can thank them for the grace of being the things that tell us it's time to slow down, to keep us alive. I'll tell you that it's easier to pay attention to your stop signs when you build a couple in along the way, when you practice, when you set yourself up to say, I'm going to stop and do some yoga once a week. I'm going to stop and sit for 20 minutes and meditate once a day. I'm going to just put a post-it on the dashboard of my car as a reminder to take a deep breath before I turn the key. And once we've stopped, we can look around so we don't run into traffic. (laughs) Intimacy with the world, connection with ourselves, holds so many answers. There is so much to discover when we stop and slow down. Our groundedness, our steadiness, comes from inside of ourselves. There's no self-help book or pill or even sermon at church that will do it for us. That's part of the grace of being alive. The grace of being connected. Our groundedness comes only when we trust what we are choosing in this life. We can stop and we can look around. And from that place, from steady ground, we can find the joy in taking our time as we move forward. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, we are grateful for the time that we have. We know that it won't be forever. The only thing we are sure of. So thank you for giving us the time that is this very moment and everything after it. We pray that we will have the peace and can find our ground. That we can live as many of these moments that we have with intention. Not with perfection, not with pure joy all the time. But recognizing the grace of freedom that we always have. To set our intentions and to choose. for these prayers spoken aloud and for the prayers on each one of these people's hearts this morning. We say amen.